So good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tom Rizzo. I'm one of the elders here at Westlake Church, and I'm filling in for Martin, who is uh, in the UK attending a, wed a wedding this weekend. So we are continuing our, our sermon series in Paul's letter, uh, second letter to the Corinthians this morning. But I, I'd like to start um, the message this morning with, with a story, and it's uh, a story about my father. Apologies to a few of you here who have heard this story in a different context, but it was in a completely uh, different sense. My father was a tax fraud investigator in New York City. And one summer day, when I was a teenager, he suggested that I come in to work with him to meet his colleagues. Now, I knew full well why he wanted me to do this. You see, my father stood about, about this tall and he would always tell his colleagues that he had a son who was a head taller. And he just wanted to show them that he wasn't, he wasn't just telling stories. So early one morning, I hopped on the commuter train with him into New York City. Um, and we had a normal conversation on the train right in. But when we, when we arrived at his office and, and met his colleagues, something started to change about my father. He carried himself a little bit differently. He used different language, language that he would have never tolerated from me at home. He seemed like a different person at work. And while it didn't seem that he was trying to hide anything from me, it made me think of a CIA double agent who lived two separate lives. Now, before we see how this story relates to the passage that Helen read to you from 2 Corinthians, I want to take a step back and, and look at the broader context of today's passage. In this passage, Paul jumps into a subject that has, it has a lot of history, um, as Martin explained last week. After Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, he visited the church to sort out a disciplinary issue, and apparently that visit went really badly. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He then wrote another letter that was quite severe, warning them to repent. But this letter hasn't, hasn't been preserved, so we don't have the opportunity to see that. But in response to this severe letter, it seems that many, if, uh, although not all, did, did repent. He then wrote what we have as 2 Corinthians. So even though we're only seeing part of the conversation, one side of the conversation, we can still get a sense from this letter what was going on there uh, between Paul and the church in Corinth. Now, as we'll see throughout the letter, um, there was still open rebellion against the apostle Paul among some in Corinth. And, and it's worth considering why. We know from the letter, the first, uh, his first letter to the Corinthians and from the sermon series that Martin preached on it, that Paul had um, admonished people in the church uh, for a number of serious problems. And, and the subsequent letter that we don't have uh, seems to have been even harsher. In addition, there were false teachers that were distorting the gospel and leading people astray. And this led some people to question Paul's character his, his appearance, his ability as a speaker, and, and his very apostleship. Now, before we look at Paul's response to some of these charges in, from the passage today, 
Let me ask you a question. How do you receive, uh, how do you respond when a Christian brother or sister, a pastor or elder, a spouse confronts you about something that isn't in line with a gospel-centered life? How do you receive rebuke? Some may take it humbly, in a humble and godly manner, using it as an opportunity to examine themselves. But often, and we've probably all experienced this, there will be denial and rejection of the message. One frequent response is to attack the rebuker. This can often happen with a spouse, for example, since they see you at your worst and may raise issues in your life that need to be straightened out. Attacking the messenger uh, is one way to delegitimize the rebuke, raising all the issues in their life that needs to be straightened out. And I'm sure probably there's more than a few of you who've experienced this. The Bible has a lot to say about how we should receive correction, particularly in the book of Proverbs. One among many of these verses is Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof lead others astray. Now, why do we dislike correction or rebuke? There are Proverbs that go as far as to say that we should love correction and rebuke. Perhaps it's because of the way it makes us feel. If I'm on the wrong track and someone points it out to me, it, it means I've fallen short in some way. I can't think as good about myself as I would like. It, it bursts my bubble. It affects my self-esteem. I can't lift my head as high as I would like. However, if you think about it in reacting this way, aren't we really denying the gospel? Our acceptance before God comes because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, not by what we have earned by a good behavior. This being the case, we should feel free to welcome rebuke and examine ourselves to see if there's any truth to it. Maybe there isn't. And if after having examined ourselves, we feel that it doesn't apply, we haven't lost anything. But if the rebuke is on target and we ignore, the, uh, ignore, ignore it and attack the one who brought it, we lose the opportunity to grow in our walk with Christ. Now, apparently in Corinth, after Paul's severe letter, uh, it seems that most of the church had heeded the rebuke and repented. But there were apparently some who still attacked the rebuker, mocking him and questioning his legitimacy as, as an apostle. So with that long preamble, uh, let's now get into today's text. So um, let's start at verse 12 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I would encourage you all to follow in your own Bible. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to see on the screen. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, follow along. So um, let me reread, um, starting at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. One of the charges against Paul was that he was duplicitous. To exhibit duplicity is, is to be two-faced or, or insincere, saying one thing to one person 
and something else to another. Although I loved my father dearly, this is what I experienced on my visit to meet his colleagues. He was acting in a way that was opposite to what he projected at home. Du duplicity can take the form of saying or writing one thing, but meaning entirely something different, um, or, something, or, or, or writing something, uh, or meaning something that is uh, behind the words that's not explicitly said. Now, the way that Paul responds to this charge might take you by surprise. He boasts. It certainly seems to be a strange way for Paul to respond to criticism, to boast. The way we usually use the word boast is to praise oneself extravagantly in, in speech, speaking of oneself with excessive pride. People tend to boast about their accomplishments, uh, one's athletic prowess, one's education, um, the important people, perhaps, that one knows, how much money one makes, although you don't hear that very much in Switzerland, um, the accomplishments of their children, or at my age, um, your grandchildren. Um, this is basically boasting about the superiority of the genes that they have inherited. Um, now, since we generally deem this sort of pride as negative, um, it doesn't quite seem right for Paul to respond in this way. However, the word boast can also mean to exult or to glory in something. And in this case, whether it's good or bad depends upon the object of the boasting. Paul writes, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in, in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Paul boasts in the fact that he behaved with simplicity and godly sincerity, which is basically the opposite of duplicity. And he expands upon this in verse 13. For we're, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. There's no hidden message behind what he's writing. He's completely sincere. Now, while these are good things, he's still exulting or glorying in his own actions and character, which still doesn't seem right, until we notice what he says in the second half of verse 12. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Paul is keenly aware of the radical change in him that comes from God's work of grace in his life, and he exults, on, exults in this. He writes later in, in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in Galatians chapter six, he writes, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's boast is not self-centered. His sincerity, which is the opposite of duplicity, comes from the work of grace that Christ has done in him. It's perhaps worth asking ourselves the question, are, are we duplicitous? Are we straightforward and sincere in what we say and write? Are we one person at work and a different person at home? Or one person at home and a different person at church? 
Is the grace of Christ transforming you? Does it leak through to all spheres of your life so that you're the same person at home and at work and at church? Now, Paul hopes in verse 14 that the Corinthians will understand that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. On the day of reckoning, when Jesus comes again, we'll not be boasting in our own accomplishments, but we will all rejoice in the work of grace that God has done in each other's lives. Now, in addition to the charge of his being duplicitous, his opponents charged him with being indecisive. Look at verses 15 and 16. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Paul had planned to visit, him, visit them on his way to Macedonia with good intentions to bless them by being with them. But apparently, he decided to change his plans. And, and from the half, of the half of the conversation that we have, it seems he seems to be accused of being indecisive and duplicitous. Look, look at verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Saying yes and no at the same time is speaking out of both sides of one's mouth, being insincere or, or duplicitous. Saying yes but meaning no is actually deceptive. But this time, Paul doesn't defend himself, but he reassures them. Look at verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He's basing his integrity and his sincerity on the character of God himself. He says, as surely as God is faithful. You know, sometimes when someone wants to convince another person that something should be obvious, one says, well, is the Pope Catholic? Um, as meaning, as surely as the Pope is Catholic, then this should be obvious, right? Um, Paul is saying, as surely as God is, faith, as surely as God is faithful, we have been sincere. However, Paul doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He justifies this statement with a linked argument, which is worth our while to unpack. And it starts with the word for. When you, when you see the word for used as a linking word in, in, in a, a scriptural passage, it's usually giving a reason for the statements that precede it. And Paul is justifying the statement, as surely God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So let's look at verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. In Jesus, there was no indecisiveness or duplicity. His gospel message wasn't yes and no. Throughout his life, Jesus knew what was awaiting him. Mark records in his gospel these words of Jesus. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. But he didn't shirk the cross. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Paul is just using the faithfulness of Jesus to justify God's faithfulness and hence Paul's sincerity. Now at this point in his argument, Paul seems to get carried away in thinking about the faithfulness of God and he makes a sweeping statement once again using the linking word for in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. The New Living Translation says, for all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. Now, if you think about it, this isn't only a statement about the faithfulness of God, but also a statement about the centrality of Christ in God's plan for all of history. Some of those in the church in Corinth who were criticizing him were false teachers. And, and Paul uses this opportunity to make clear the centrality of Christ, that all God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The death of Christ on the cross to redeem us was God's plan for the fullness of time, the pinnacle of history with all things united in Christ. And this was his plan from the very beginning of time. Listen to these verses from Paul's letter to Timothy. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's plan for, for all of history was for, to, for Christ to die on the cross. The entire Old Testament looked forward to it. The promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him was fulfilled by Jesus, through Jesus' death on the cross. And Jesus spent much of his time teaching his disciples how the Old Testament pointed to him. After the resurrection, when he met uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he explained to them how the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, he said? Now, did you ever, ever ask yourself the question, why this plan? Was there another way, any other way than the cross, than this plan for history? I, I mean, I've asked myself this question many times. I've, I've asked myself how an infinitely holy God and an infinitely loving God 
could communicate his true character to his creatures with whom he wants to have a relationship. How, how do you communicate those, those qualities? And if these qualities in him are truly infinite, how, how could he do this? To be honest, in, in my finite mind, I cannot think of another way he could have done it other than through the cross of Christ. It's a glorious plan. And that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Or as Apostle Paul writes in his letter to Ephesians, to the praise of his glorious grace. God is working in history to accomplish his purposes. And Jesus Christ is the focal point of that plan. It is his plan to reveal his true character to his creatures, to his glory. Now, although Jesus and his death on the cross is the focal point, God's plan doesn't end there. In verses 21 and 22, Paul expounds upon how God works faithfully in his people until their salvation is fully realized. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has put, uh, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul says he establishes us, he has anointed us, he has put his seal on us, he has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So let's take each of these one at a time. Verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Now, I want to make a brief digression here as we consider these verses. I want to ask the questions, who is us in this verse? Who is you in this verse? And who am I, the reader? Whenever we study a passage of scripture and try to apply it to ourselves, we have to ask the question, who am I? How do I read this? Uh, how do I read myself into the passage? Is the passage speaking directly to me? Is it speaking to someone else? And how do I apply it to myself? There can be serious misinterpretations of scripture if we don't consider this carefully. And I just wanna give you an example from a different passage of what a difference this can make if one doesn't get it right. So look at um, John chapter 14, verse six, where John writes, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, who is the you referred to in this verse? And who am I, the reader? How do I read myself in? If the you in this verse is the reader, then what's your conclusion from this verse? The Holy Spirit will teach me everything I need to know. He'll bring to me all that Jesus taught. No need to read the Bible. Just pray and say, Holy Spirit, fill me. However, if the you in this verse are the 12 disciples, then your conclusion should be, I should study everything that the apostles have written, that is the Bible, because Jesus brought all that he said to their remembrance. So you can see how, how you read yourself into this verse can lead to completely opposite conclusions of how you apply it to your life. And, and it's fair to say this kind of error in, in Bible interpretation can lead to some serious mistakes and even cause controversies within the church. 
Now, that being said, let's come back to verse 21. Because Paul uses this word us several times and in several different ways in the same verse. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Who is us? In, in this case, it seems that this would be Paul and his associates, Timothy and, and Silvanus. Who, who is you in this part of the verse? Well, you seems to be the Corinthians that he's writing to. Now, who am I? Who should I identify with? That is, as a reader, in this case, probably the Corinthians, which would, which would make the most sense. So here Paul is reminding them that it is God who calls both him and the Corinthians, and by extension us, into a relationship with him by his grace. And, and once again, Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. So it is God himself who calls us and establishes us. Now to the second half of verse 21. And has anointed us. What is it? Well, first of all, what does it mean to be anointed? Um, to be anointed is to be set apart and gifted by God for his calling. Um, and, and this was symbolized in the Old Testament by, by the pouring of oil. Now, who is us in this verse? And who am I, the reader? This one's it's a little bit more difficult, um, and sometimes we have to rely on other passages of, of Scripture to, to, uh, to enlighten us. On the one hand, you might say, well, us is Paul and his associates, as it was in the first half of the verse. He was appointed as an apostle by the risen Christ himself, and, and thus he was anointed or, or set apart for the mission that God had, has given him. But there's also a sense that all believers are anointed. Um, hear the words of the apostle Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In, in a sense, we all have calling from God. We have a calling to proclaim his excellencies to the world. It's important not only to think of pastors and missionaries as those who are called or set apart. And, and I think we can make a case that the us here applies to all of us, that we are all anointed. Now, finally, I want to treat the last two parts of verse 22 together, since they both involve the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. And who, has, who also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Who is the us referred to in this part of the verse? It would actually make no sense if, Paul, uh, if, if it were Paul and his associates. It most certainly refers to all the believers, including ourselves. So you can see in this single verse, Paul uses the term us uh, differently, and it's important to, to sort that out. But here, it seems he's talking to all believers. A seal was, was a mark of ownership, sort of like what one does in, in branding cattle. The Holy Spirit is both a mark of ownership as well as a guarantee of our future inheritance. And, and this is echoed once again by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. A seal for a mark of ownership is not only a mark for others to see, but it's also to reassure ourselves that we belong to God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. Do you ever think about what this means and, and how it plays out in, in practice? What, what, is it, what does it really mean? Now, I have to admit, I, I like watching Christian movies. Some of them can be a little bit cheesy, but, but, but I like watching Christian movies. Movies like Fireproof or, or War Room, if you've seen them, where, where you see people's lives turned around as they turn to Jesus. And when I watch these movies, there's something in my spirit that's moved by that. And, and sometimes I actually get a bit emotional. And it's the same with hearing people's testimonies of how they've come to faith. And I believe this is the spirit testifying to my spirit that I am a child of God. It shows that he's changed my heart to love the things that he loves, sinners turning to him. I also sense this when I hear certain truths about God's son. And I find myself moved to the point that sometimes I just have to stop singing for a few moments and, and, and collect myself. An old hymn, which perhaps dates me somewhat, um, is one that's called The Love of God. Anyone, anyone know this hymn? Uh, I can't sing it for you. I won't, I won't, uh, I won't dare to try to sing it uh, uh, for you. But um, let me just read um, verse 3 from this hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. I, I sometimes even have difficulty just reading the words. A song like this moves me, and I think this is the Holy Spirit testifying to my spirit that I am a child of God. And finally, the last part of verse 22, and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The sense of the word here used for guarantee is different from a seal or mark of ownership. It's, it's a financial term. It's a down payment. A down payment is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. It's not the full amount. The fullness of our, salvation, of our salvation is yet to come. As Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through him, uh, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In closing, Paul's major point in this morning's passage is that God is faithful and that Paul, and Paul has used this as an argument to defend himself. God has been faithful in working out his plan in history and in calling a people to himself. His work of salvation in our lives is not finished. We only have a down payment now. 
Our salvation will be complete when we're united with him. And that is a day that we should long for. There is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. And God will be faithful to bring us to the end. Let's pray.